as the understanding of Ian McGilchrist's work becomes better known, I've noticed that Ian's often asked at the end of his talks what to do now. We're persuaded by your account of brain lateralization and want to know what difference it might make in our lives and how even to live a life that might cultivate this revolution in attention that he so brilliantly describes. And so here's a few thoughts on that conversion of awareness. It's about how to be differently in the world, not so much by being fixated on fixing oneself or things around, but on relating to oneself and all things differently and seeing what unfolds as that difference itself develops. So you might say escaping the analysis paralysis of left hemisphere functioning and connecting to that unfolding of vision that the right hemisphere brings. The unseen potentials of which the left hemisphere knows nothing might emerge. A left hemisphere culture too, of course, as well as different possibilities. It's about a kind of attentional freedom, this movement from left to right types of perception, the flow of those shifts rather than being stuck in one or the other. And I think it's a kind of receptive opening. Almost any moment or experience or practice can present such possibilities of opening. The key perhaps is not trying to possess or fully understand what's going on, but to be able to follow what's going on. And that includes, of course, moments of breakdown and ordeal as well, which one might learn to trust in time can become known as processes of transformation, even though they feel like suffering. So here are 10 suggestions. And the first one begins actually with that notion of suffering, because I think becoming interested in darkness is one facet of this attentional freedom opening up to the right. In a way, it's self-evident because as far as the left hemisphere attention is concerned, that which it doesn't understand is going to appear as darkness. And there's a deeper sense, though, in which the two, the light and the darkness, for we mortals at least, are part of this attentional freedom. William Blake makes this famous remark about without contraries is no progression. The dynamism of shifts of attention, different qualities of perception itself generates a kind of energy. But there's also a sense in which understanding the darkness is important because it reveals different kinds of light. When the light that you have learned to trust ceases to become clear, the darkness becomes the place of radical novelty. And Blake and this other great influence on me, Dante, both teach that by learning to follow what seem at first subtle, almost ignorable lights, the ones that are seen inwardly with the mind's eye, the ones that don't scream their presence through the empirical senses, these at first faint indicators can become compelling 
they can become brighter as we orientate our lives around them. So another way of putting that is that left hemisphere style attention learns to give way to right style reception. Dante describes this in this image, which is when in the Inferno, the fixed mode of attention of infernal life, when he first approaches things that seem very dark, in this case, the lovers, Francesca and Paolo, who have become locked to each other because they've become locked to a monodimensional view of romantic love, desperate to find fulfilment in each other. Dante himself, when he sees that, sees them and so sees that in himself, operative in himself, he loses his mind and so collapses. Um, he becomes like the lovers, in a way hoping for a spiritual bypass via ecstasy or peak experience or trip, um, you know, these things that romantic love promises and so can't use his right hemisphere attention to move beyond it, get stuck in it. But then comes a moment as he journeys on from the infernal through to the purgatorial, where the dark night of the soul he sees can be a moment of letting go of what he clings to, his defences, the props, distractions, even the hopes that the separate self so deeply holds to. And when becomes capable of looking into the darkness, rather than just losing his mind in the darkness and collapsing, a different possibility emerges. One of the great reveals in the Divine Comedy is this moment where Dante and Virgil have to crawl on the frozen body of Lucifer to move from infernal states of mind to these purgatorial ones where change becomes possible. You might say that he has to know the full power of the darkness of envy or usury or hate to know the greater power of being and light and love. And that is what seeds the different way of looking at the world through the darkness, not around or above or under it but keeping his mind and so being able to find a way forward. So becoming interested in darkness, I think is gonna be part of the difference that cultivating the freedom of attention that movement between the left and the right can bring. My second thought was to trust the nature of the imagination more. Blake is quite clear that we're using the imagination all the time. Um, everything we see is shaped by the presumptions we bring to it. So he suggests that we might as well admit that and cultivate it and ask ourselves, is it expansive? Does it bring more and more of reality to us? Or does it actually close reality down in reductive moods um, or turn reality into a kind of flat land where everything is interpreted in, in one way and, of course, in rather dead or recalcitrant ways um, where, as it were, it's only our power that exercises any power in the cosmos rather than us relating to wider and wider powers. Blake explained it in this famous remark where he talks about seeing not with the eyes but through the eyes, much as we don't see with a window but through a window into wider reality. Around us, this famous remark where he says, 
I assert for myself that I do not behold the outward creation and that to me it is hindrance and not action. So he's not just resting on the surface appearance as the outward creation. To do so is actually constraining. It's a hindrance and it's to be passive in relation to the world. It's not to bring all you are in relation, participative interaction with the world. And so be in action, not passivity. And then this remark, what? It will be questioned when the sun rises, do you not see a round disc of fire, somewhat like a guinea? And Blake says, oh no, no, I see an innumerable company of the heavenly host crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm sure he sees the sunrise as you or I do too, but he sees it with more than just the empirical senses, sees the inner life of the golden light coming towards him and hence perceives the presence of the heavenly host in that light, which shares in the glory too. I question not my corporeal eye any more than I would question a window concerning a sight. This remark that he doesn't just stop at the empirical any more than one would stop at a window if you saw something through the window. You look through it and not with it. And then Wordsworth adds this remark, Therefore am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains and of all the mighty words of ear and eye both what they half create and what perceive. Well pleased to recognize this combination of perception and bringing our own creative powers to what we perceive because that creativity is itself part of the divine creativity. And so is a deeper revelation that the imagination can bring. You know, worldviews can close down possibilities which of course scientific materialism can do as well as bring all its benefits. Um, and so I think it's about seeing worldviews as, as maps, a set of maps, um, none regarded as absolute, um, but all valuable in so far as they help us to take the creative power of the imagination to what we perceive and so enhance our response to the world and so see more of the world, which of course we're part of as well. Um, you know, if you feel that love is basic, not dead atoms, then following lines of love make sense, much as the scientist that assumes it's all atoms follows where the atoms take them. Um, use the Ignatian exercise of consolation, which means ask yourself, is it mind expanding, soul expanding? bringing in aspects of the eternal and divine, as opposed to desolation, which means soul-diminishing, um, contracting experience. So part of the imaginative way is to test all perceptions, experiences, feelings, almost moment by moment, and ask where they're taking you. Devotion, I think, is really important here too. You know, if the imagination is truth-bringing, then... Imagination is not our own possession, but participates in the wider imagination of nature, which itself is a reflection of the divine imagination as much as we are. So devotional practices are about acknowledging that wider dynamic, back to yoga in Indian traditions, worship in Christian Sufi traditions. You know, so the power of feeling free to light a candle as well as to remember someone or bowing before images that means the symbols become alive, transmit to you as well as 
open your stance towards them, singing, talking about loving texts, what you receive from great writers like Dante and Blake, as well as learning about them. This business of being happy not to fully understand, but instead trust the sense of inward flow that devotion brings in its expression and when it's a liberative practice. Um, and even elements of the darkness apart here, you know, sadness and suffering, even raging, lamenting, can become an imaginative perception because in that expression, longing and communion, the yearning for these things are active in us and so become part of the process of letting go and so becoming freer to let in more in that delight might return. So that's the second thought about really going for the imagination in all its richness. Being embodied feels really important. Ian makes this point in many ways in his books, the right hemisphere being more connected to the body and so the body being a site of this freer attention. Um, it's the best way to bring conversion or epiphany. Many spiritual adepts have taught us and the heart has its reasons is Pascal's famous remark. Um, and this is noticed and been taken account of um, in the sciences as well. Um, the role of play is an obvious part of this, um, that creatures, including ourselves, are not always online, as Robert Bella puts it. It's not just about survival. It's also about enjoying being, um, exploring what it is to be. You know, the birds that swoops through the air isn't always or just catching the gnats. Um, it might be enjoying the experience. The robin that sings throughout the winter and into the spring, no doubt is signaling his territory, but is feeling the fullness of his being in so doing as well. Play is woven through life quite as much as survival. Um, and embodiment, you know, opens possibilities of intention and attention as well. Going on a pilgrimage has always been part of religious practice, um, attending to liturgies and rituals, all these things that have practice and pattern and the raising of hands as well as the bowing and the lighting of candles. They all bring different imaginative, attentive, intentive possibilities to us and exploring them opens that up. Um, going outside too, being in these wider energies, um, not just being in the energy of one's own psyche is clearly important. William Blake captures this in his poem, The Schoolboy. Um, which is about the education of the world around us and what it might bring to us. He writes, I love to rise in a summer morn when the birds sing on every tree. The distant huntsman winds his horn and the skylark sings with me. Oh, what sweet company. But to go to school in a summer morn, oh, it drives all joy away under a cruel eye outworn. The little ones spend the day in sighing and dismay. Ah, then at times I drooping sit and spend many an anxious hour, nor in my book can I take delight, nor sit in learning's bower, worn through with the dreary shower. 
learning's power there is the tree sitting outside that the schoolboy in this classroom longs to know how can the bird that is born for joy sit in a cage and sing how can a child when fears annoy but droop his tender wing and forget his youthful spring O oh, father and mother if buds are nipped and blossoms blown away and if the tender plants are stripped of their joy in the springing day by sorrow and care's dismay how shall the summer arise in joy or the summer fruits appear or how shall we gather what griefs destroy or bless the mellowing year when the blasts of winter appear if the schoolboy doesn't learn of this sweet company where the skylark sings and the birds sing on every tree how can they be in contact that with that when the full summer comes in their adult life it's been educated out of them and then even know the satellites when the blasts of winter appears so get outside in that embodied way as well a third thought a fourth related again i think is loving what blake called the minute particulars loving the details of life knowing that you can see a world in a grain of sand heaven in a wild flower that infinity is actually found in the palm of your hand and eternity is known in the now of the hour as blake puts it famously in the auguries of innocence innocence their meaning this receptive open capacity um not naivety generalizations abstract and so therefore take us away from the minute particulars that surround us they replace the territory with the map as it's often put now so knowing yourself and the things that are closest to the particular is what takes you to the universal here's the rose which appears to dante at the peak of the paradiso this very particular beautiful thing but that immediately speaks to us of a microcosm that has a universal feel you know these microcosms around us like the rose they take us out of our own microcosm that's another reason to love the minute particulars um it's about moving to the edge of one's own sensibilities in the mind's eyes you gaze on these things and realizing that at that edge there's a receptivity possible that might receive that which is alive the inward life of the microcosm that you're consciously gazing onto looking out is about receiving inwards and the minute particulars that we share our life with aren't just parallel universes but our possibilities of bridging into another universe and so expanding our own perception of things loving the minute particulars and that way the universal shows up the world is found in a grain of sand monitoring how you experience time i think can be a fifth way of engaging with this freedom of attention and flow of perception um, dante thinks a lot about time as he moves through the inferno into purgatorio and the paradiso essentially in the inferno there is only the past and the future there's no present and that keeps people stuck because they're either trapped in the horrors of the past or terrified about 
about what they imagine the future might be. The present starts to appear in the purgatory. It's a presence of change and so actually brings its own kind of suffering. Um, but it's a suffering where change becomes possible to perceive and so it's a kind of suffering that becomes more trusted. And then that leads in the Paradiso to an experience of time still, but now it's time that's known to be the moving image of eternity. And so a strict differentiation between the temporal and the timeless starts to dissolve. A veil between these two modalities starts to be removed and the asymmetric nature to use a very Ian McGilchrist term, um, between time and eternity starts to be understood with time being but a reflection of eternity. We know this day by day, you, you experience it in psychotherapy, where a particular session might drag with the clock um, and you know somehow you're not working at the right depth then, but as you move into deeper, more profound aspects of the psyche when with someone time shifts and it becomes less present and so at the end of the session you'll say something like my goodness that went so speedily um, and even during the course of a day notice how you experience time in different ways the moments when it drags and then the moments when it passes um, often the timeless nature of the day is associated with when you're feeling in a flow of the day or enjoying the light of the day or you're on a walk and engage with the microcosms around you in the woods, in the fields, enjoying the horizon. Time becomes less present as you enjoy the timelessness of these moments. And then, of course, afterwards you can say, gosh, that went so quickly and you want to be back in it. But the other reflection on this is that Actually, you're experiencing time in a different way. Um, so that's a fifth possibility for developing this right hemisphere participation, monitoring how you're experiencing time across the course of the day, across the course of the seasons. A sixth way, I think, is to make connections via triangulation. Don't just think it's me and my experience or me and another or me and my troubles even, but holding that dyad with an alertness to a third possibility that might be coming through. What's trying to be born in this difficult moment or this lovely moment? How can it become expansive, not just a repetition either of delight or suffering? What additional presence is here? There's me, there's you, there's the relationship between me and you. So what's that relationship itself? Is that got a quality of being? It's about escaping a binary world way of seeing the world. Um, you know, the, the brain lateralization thesis itself is not just about having two possibilities, but how those two possibilities provide a release or a pathway into a wider perception two gives way to three. Um, this is quite widely known when you start to think about it. You know, metaphors, for example, aren't dyadic. 
it's not just about me trying to describe something in an imaginative way, but that itself releases into a, a new third perception of things. Um, Einstein, for example, said that an equation is a kind of metaphor, E equals mc squared. You know, it's a metaphor that links energy that was thought to be one thing with mass that was thought to be something different, but turns out they're connected. But of course, that connection prompts the thought. So is there a third thing, a space of reality in which energy and mass are a one thing, not just two things related? So it opens up a new way of seeing the cosmos, as David Bohm, the physicist, put it. In a way, an equation is a metaphor. And you can see that when you get a new insight from contemplating an equation as metaphor, a new perception into some other dimension, Bohm said. Moral questions are like this as well. Um, it's not just about whether something's right or wrong. Sometimes one has to decide. But if you can hold that back and ask yourself, you know, maybe it's not just about what's right or wrong, but what's good in a deeper sense here. Can I risk perhaps making a mistake in order that something more truthful might come through? Beauty is often a good test here. Beauty can draw us into a space that's unknown, but somehow assures us it's, it's the way to go. So that's a sixth possibility to develop. Using the presence of binaries, of dualisms in life, not to get stuck in the one, two, one, two, one, two, um, but to use that as a moment to ask is some third possibility, seeking to be present here that I hadn't anticipated before. A seventh similarly expansive possibility is to consider, again, the intelligences around one. Now, of course, this is partly the intelligences that are other people, um, particularly those who become guides, living and dead, like Blake and Dante, learning from them, not just learning about them. Maybe they inhabit wider cosmoses already. They've learned about the attentional freedom and have gone there and so are guiding us forward. I think other creatures, um, animals and even landscapes and plants, similarly, they are living in the world in a different way with an intelligence manifest in their behaviours, in their form, in their patterns of life. And that's very decentering and so expansive for us. I think consciously or not, it's partly why being in nature is so powerful. Um, you know, if the brain is not the generator of consciousness, but is the filter, receiver, the participant with consciousness, as is the whole body, of course, um, that is to say we're open to other intelligences, those that we can make tangible sense of, but even those that we struggle to understand through scientific materialism and yet are clearly powerful. I'm thinking of things like dreams, that part of our psyche that can surprise us, bemuse us, but is constantly speaking to us from just beyond our conscious understanding. Um, synchronicities too, if you like, the dream of the inner world around us, not just our own immediate psyche, um, that makes what looks like random 
conjunctions seem meaningful and asking yourself, so what might that meaning be? Can I follow it? Being open to that. Who knows where it might take one? Similarly, telepathies. Um, maybe there's a porousness to the intelligences around us that we share with. Why wouldn't there be? Intelligence can't be our own as a isolated monad. Um, we're always already born into the intelligence of the world around us. So why wouldn't we experience that in telepathies and even higher intelligences, the angelic intelligences around us as the consciousness of the cosmos, as medieval writers thought and assumed, you know, there's an intelligence unfolding at all levels, not just the natural world at the planetary level, but the interplanetary level, the cosmic level, the wisdom that the physicist studies as they gaze out across the cosmos or gaze down into the microscopic world as well and see patterns, see form, which they convert into abstractions and laws. But of course, those abstractions and laws are just reductions or representations of the intelligence that they're studying. I think this is a crucial area. You know, most humans for most of history have organized themselves around these wider ecologies, um, not just to extract from, but relate to. We need a new story of ourselves, not just again as survival machines that can exercise our will and power over a dead world and so struggle to find a way through it, but as participants joyfully as well as needing to relate to this wider world. Um, I've studied the ancient Greek world um, with my love of Plato and um, it's quite clear to me you know that a city like ancient Athens wasn't really the originator of democracy as we think of it, um, as if in the ancient world, people thought of themselves as individuals that had to negotiate how to live together through systems of voting and election. Rather, I think that in ancient Athens, they were very conscious of relating to wider presences, the gods of the soil and earth, the chthonic gods, as well as the gods of the heavens and the celestial worlds, like in Athens, of course, Athena herself, and that Democracy was a way of saying this part of life is how we humans are going to relate to one another. But it was only a small part of life in ancient Athens. It's been calculated that at least 40% of the energy of the city in terms of time and wealth was spent relating to these wider ecologies still. Festivals, rituals, the building of great places like the Parthenon on top of the Acropolis. That was quite as much a part of ancient civic life as the activities in the Agora and the democratic processes that they developed. It was a way actually of integrating individual human life with the life of the wider world, the wider intelligences. Maybe rethinking our present democracy in that way too might be one way to consider how to relate in this expansive vein. It's about being prepared to be spoken to, to being approached by the wider 
dynamics, being in conversation with the cosmos through ritual, through the festive patterns of the year, through limiting the human, understanding the edges of our own intelligence, which a democratic process can help us see by the limitations of our human politics. And so in that limitation, becoming aware of the wider connections that we might reignite by becoming alert again to the way they might approach and speak to us, dreams, synchronicities, relating though to the gods once more. Always I think this must be connected to the darkness, to the difficulties of suffering. Um, it's not just a peak experience, that kind of moment of ecstasy. And so the eighth point I wanted to stress, again, the nature of suffering. We need to be careful here, um, not sentimentalizing. Um, you know, suffering is always suffering and it's easy to talk about when one isn't suffering. Um, and then the minute one really is, one wonders on earth what one was saying. Um, but it's very striking that all the spiritual traditions, wisdom traditions, tell us that suffering can be part of illumination. Um, Dante, of course, has to go through the inferno and even the purgatory where suffering isn't a collapse, but is part of the path. And Blake, I think, describes this really well um, with his notion of fourfold perception. The experience of suffering varies in the four modes of perception that he describes in his work. One is Ulro, and here suffering is reduced to just a statistic, um, not even human. Um, it's just the numbers on a page, and that terrifies us because it strips out the human, in fact. It, it doesn't even see that in the midst of suffering there can be kindness and love. And so is really the reduction of life to the void, to the nihil, um, which of course happens in the modern world. But in a second kind of consciousness, what he calls generation, here suffering is experienced as real and, and not just a dead statistic, but it's treated as a problem to try to remove a kind of biomechanical medical problem, say, um, suffering that can be alleviated. Um, now, this is no doubt good because suffering is suffering. But as I think we found out during the pandemic, if all suffering gets loaded into the health system, then the health system doesn't get, get overloaded with people with biomedical difficulties that might be solvable, but gets overloaded with the anxiety, the existential question. And so that's part of the threat to health services when they can't cope. But Blake describes a, a third understanding, Bueller he calls it, where it's recognised that care is more than just solving problems. It's about accompanying, being with someone on the path. And that quality of care itself opens up a new possibility. It's not just me and the suffering, but the third thing maybe starts to appear. Suffering becomes a birth pang, 
And that can lead to a wider perception which Blake calls eternity. It's not so much that suffering makes sense, but that sense is not destroyed by suffering. You know, in a war, morale is really important um, because then the sacrifices that people are called to make carry meaning. They can even be welcomed. Albion, in Blake's mythology, realises that the furnaces of affliction, as Blake puts it, can become fountains of living waters, that sacrifice can actually lead to more life. If there's the genuine freedom through this widening and expansion of attention that can understand that, can see that, this is the consciousness that Blake called eternity. There's deep truths here that can open up when this capacity to participate more and more in life and not just cling to life in a power-driven, agency-driven way becomes possible. So this leads to a ninth point, which I think of as feeling the precipitous nature of these intuitions, of the presence of more, even of the infinite. Um, Nicholas of Cusa is a figure that Ian McGilchrist turns to every so often, and he has thought experiments that develop this. And one is to think about a top that is spinning, a spinning top. And what you'll know if you've ever done this is that the faster the top spins, the more stable it becomes. And, nature, and Nicholas of Cusa develops this to suggest that if a top was spinning at infinite speed, you might say it would have an unchanging stability. And moreover, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the spinning and the stability, even the not moving, because every point in an infinitely spinning top would be everywhere and not moving, therefore. So this is a moment where flow and dynamism and movement actually becomes the same as unchanging stability. The one and the many are joined. The plural becomes known as, as many reflections of the unity, not because the minute particulars, the plural, has been denied, but precisely because they've been entered into and so seen in their truest nature. We don't have to choose between process and stasis, but can perceive that process itself is part of the completion, the wholeness, the oneness. In traditional theism, this is to say that God is impassable and unchanging, not because God is outside of all things, but precisely because God is the ground and the full satisfaction of all things. God's participation in the world is not one of distance, but is one of such intimacy that it is seen as the end of all things, known as the ground of being. I mean, you might even dare to think about good and evil in this way, that good and evil aren't opposites, they're not fixed dualities. It's not as if we have to develop a Manichaean account of how good and evil can coexist, but to see that 
that which one calls evil, certainly bad darkness, is a mistaken way of relating to the light. It's therefore understood as um, an incomplete form of goodness through mistake, through ignorance, through perverse exercises of power. But when the evil is known because it's faced and seen, it's also known as a reduced, constrained, restricted attempt to live that no doubt can do huge damage as a result, but that when that's understood and the light is picked up again, the good starts to return and the truth is that there's a goodness beyond good and evil, you might say, exceeds both. It's another way in which this precipitous nature of these deep intuitions, the presence of the infinite and eternal, if we can dare to stay with them rather than resolving and solving them too quickly, can take us into different worlds. It's the notion of emptiness in many wisdom and spiritual traditions. As Meister Eckhart puts it, for you to know God in God's way, your knowing must be a pure unknowing and a forgetting of yourself and all creatures. This kind of emptiness is not the void, it's the emptiness that becomes a new possibility. You cannot do better than to place yourself in darkness and in unknowing, Meister Eckhart continues. The only name it has is potential receptivity. He says it's the potential of receptivity in which you'll be perfected. Precipitousness. Another way of putting this, I think it's really important to pursue what feels genuinely at the edge of opening for you, at the sweet spot of this mix of yearning, but also risk, genuine risk, and then also love, devotion, following the line of beauty, even in the risky moments. And, you know, this will vary substantially from person to person and even across your own lifetime. And we need to practice and stick at things, of course, not just flitting from one possibility to another, um, because often the depth is only revealed when one has mastered the knack. Um, you know, you've got to learn how to do meditation to, to realise what meditation might bring and to be able to explore its riches. And that takes time. Um, we have to change to be able to receive from these practices, these different possibilities of attention. But we must also, I think, feel free to explore different practices and religious spiritual activities in order to understand that new qualities of vitality might come to us as we do that. And so we both keep at the edge of opening as well as understanding a practice in its depth you know, the Buddhists put this well when they talk about having the childlike mind or the beginner's mind. Um, it's in other traditions to Blake's word is innocence. It's that openness, that freshness. Um, so the precipitous nature of these different modes of perception is partly not trying to resolve tensions too quickly, you know, like the difference between good and evil or stasis and process but being ready for a new consciousness to come through but also staying in that moment of dynamic expansion for ourselves personally as we explore different practices even as we persist with different practices too. 
And then tenth point I wanted to make, um, a final thought, is that I think we need to know that suffering, darkness, the tragic in life, ultimately can be embraced by goodness, by light, by completion, by satisfaction, even if we don't understand that for large parts of our life even. The traditional way of putting this is to say that comedy embraces tragedy. It's not that you have one or the other. Um, you know, as a great Shakespeare play um, will demonstrate, but rather that the good wins out. The comedy is that ultimately meaning remains, renewal is possible, reversals become possible, undoings can lead to new forms of delight. The aim is to recover and rediscover a relationship with reality. Perhaps tragedy almost always arises when human beings use power for their own ends. It's a kind of power to manipulate and control rather than using our powers of awareness, sacrifice, stepping aside to step into more so that we understand that we can be actively involved in recovering the sources and the wellsprings of life, you know, be it called energy, spirit, Tao, emptiness, the divine. Personally, I think this is to say that reality can't let us go. You know, our relationship to wider life is like a parent to a child. Um, the parent knows that it's worth holding out for more, even as their child is screaming and yelling, and even as they don't understand what's happening on, because there is a wider awareness that awaits us. A.N. Whitehead whom Ian McGilchrist draws on a lot, he puts it this way, he says, God is the great companion, the fellow sufferer who understands. But God is the great companion, not just another companion, because God isn't destroyed by the suffering, even though God experiences the suffering and understands the suffering. Because from the divine perspective, the darkness has been seen fully without reserve. And so it's known in its truth. This is, in Christianity, I think the message of the cross and that the cross is part of the Easter story. The cross is part of resurrection because God is the great companion, not just another companion. But this is our vocation too. Meister Eichhardt puts, we're all meant to be mothers of God because God is always needing to be born into life. Perhaps just adding the qualifier that God doesn't need us to be born in the sense of as if it were God was sort of sitting around waiting for us to say, yes, OK, you can be born in me now. And something's added to God in our yes. But rather, when we say yes to life, we wake up to the reality that this is all part of the divine life that proceeds, emanates, is William Blake's word, from the divine life that is creative because that is the nature of the divine life. It's God as the fullest expression of life, doing what God does all along. 
Eternity is in love with the productions of time, William Blake said, because from eternity, time is known to be myriad reflections of itself. The minute particulars are the universal. The moments of time are the reflections of eternity. The darkness is the place in which subtler lights start to reveal themselves and be shown. The flow is the way in which completion comes to be known to us. The left hemisphere is in the service of the right when it is being most fully itself and so leading us to more and more expansive perceptions of things. So my 10 ways of engaging with Ian's work, practices, modes of attention that one can bring into the everyday and so follow the golden string that leads to wider and wider sense of things. Be interested in darkness because in the darkness new light is found. Understanding the imagination not just as adding colour to life but as itself revealing more and more of life because our imagination is only part of the imagination that is embedded and unfolding if often concealed in all things around us. Be embodied. Thirdly, because by stepping into the world physically is to sense more and so be changed. Get outside, go on a pilgrimage. Love the minute particulars because that's the way to know the universal. Um, as the ancient traditions put it in relation to what's good, beautiful and true, the so-called transcendentals, the good, the beautiful and true are known in moments of goodness, moments of beauty, moments of truth. Monitor your experience of time, I suggest fifthly. Notice how it's not always clock time. Sometimes there's flow time, sometimes there's timelessness. And if you become more conscious of these shifts, you become freer in your movement across different experiences of time. Sixth, always be ready for that third thing that's awaiting to be born or seen in a moment that otherwise seems like a dualism or a binary. Notice the energy in between you and another, and is that relational energy itself a third presence? Be open to other intelligences around you. Your intelligence, in a way, is your own to do with what you will, but of course you were given your intelligence. It comes from somewhere, and that's partly natural, but also we can move back into the dream world, synchronicities, the gods, the supernatural, if you like, expanding our notion of intelligences, the angels. The nature of suffering, again, starts to be known as not removing sense and meaning, but somehow as being capable of holding sense and meaning. You know, morale in times of war is part of that, the sacrifice that one may for another that's part of that as well but it's difficult it's risky it's edgy one hardly does say it because that leads to a ninth sense that we must be able to embrace a kind of precipitousness in this engagement this path 
this expansion of attention because we are being tipped into new worlds. The precipitousness isn't just frightening and fearsome at times, but is also one of holding out so that the finite yields to the infinite, the time yields to eternity, not wanting to close down too quickly problems, paradoxes, holding on to them because they promise more. And then the tenth way was to have faith in a way that comedy survives and embraces tragedy, that good relationship with evil is asymmetric and the good is more robust, that delight is the most expansive way of living, can say yes to the whole of life, even if knowing the intense meaning of pain and suffering, because it shows that love and life and beauty matters. What this all adds up to, I think, is that we're on a path that I don't think actually is so much one of evolution, as if it was random occurrences generating more complex manifestations and forms. It's not also, I think, emergence, as if there was a kind of direction of travel through the processes of all things, but rather it's a return, a return to the being, the intelligence, the love that is our origin, the origin of all things, that which is the ground and completion. And so is not only the source and wellspring, but also the end and the telos. And for me, this is the value of Ian's work ultimately, that it helps us to respond to this invitation in life, to step more and more into life and so find the fulfilment in that stepping into it helps us understand how there can be a perceptual awakening when we embrace this attentional freedom, when we learn to move between left perceptions and right perceptions, the opening, the discerning, the new possibility, the understanding, integrating that in order to become more and more individuated in the world. And I hope that these 10 thoughts of darkness, imagination, embodiment, minute particulars, time, the third, wider intelligences, the deep nature of suffering, the precipitousness of paradox, and the trustworthiness of comedy. I hope these things are a help. <laughs>